At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. This Christmas season, we invite you to look deeper into the incredible covenants God made with His people in Scripture. Tune into our current series, Gift Wrapped, From Longing to Lavish, to discover God's unwavering promises to meet the ultimate longings of our heart and ultimately renew our hope with the brilliant truth of the gospel. So have you uh, ever received a really meaningful, unexpected present? Like one of those gifts where you knew somebody took some time to think about you, care about you, and then present you with kind of a gift out of the blue that you weren't expecting. That's always a great moment in life, isn't it, when you get one of those presents? My wife is one of those people that has the ability to give gifts like that. True confession for myself, I am a terrible gift giver. I'm terrible. I, I don't, I'm, my family's not great at it. Like, I just, I'm just not the, the world's greatest gift giver. But my wife, my wife is a phenomenal gift giver. Like, she has this ability to just hear and store the right information, the right things from her friends and family and those closest to her. And she always has this ability to give them something in the right timing that has purpose and meaning and is more than just the silly trinkets that I often find. Even in this season, one of the joys I love at Christmas is seeing the way my wife gives, gets gifts for our family. So we gave up many years ago me trying. It, it never ends up working out well. But she always has this way of buying presents for my kids that I'm always like, how did you even know like they would want that or need that? And if you've ever received a present from someone like that, you know there's like a certain joy that comes in receiving an unexpected present that just gets you, right? That just kind of has purpose and meaning and something deeper behind it. There's just a lot of joy that comes in that. Well, this morning, as we kind of jump into the text that we're going to study, we're going to encounter someone who receives kind of an unexpected, meaningful, purposeful present. We're continuing in our series that we've called Gift Wrapped, where we've been looking through the Old Testament and studying passages where God makes specific promises with people. And we call these promises covenants. They're relationship promises that God enters in. And when you look at the covenants that God makes, it actually does a couple of things. One, it unfurls the story that God is telling in the world. But it also through them, reveals the truth of Jesus and the greatest gift that he is. If you remember last week, we talked about how when you look through the covenants, it's kind of like slowly unwrapping a present. You kind of see more meaning to the truth and reality of Christmas as you look at each one of these key promises that God had, has made. And as we've looked through these promises, we've seen that there's kind of a flow in the story. If you remember, we looked at how at the very beginning, God creates the world good, but then through the sin and rebellion of the first human beings, the world falls into chaos and sin and death begins to reign. But God promises in that moment that he's going to do something about it, that he is going to work to restore his world back to the way he made it. And he begins to make a series of promises to unfurl that greater promise of redemption. He first brings a promise with Noah, and then he makes a promise with the man Abraham that he's going to provide land and a people and ultimately bless the whole earth. And then last week, we looked at the promise God makes with the nation of Israel. But today, we're going to look at a promise, a covenant that God makes with someone that comes in an unexpected way 
kind of like an unexpected present. Now, let me ask you this question before we jump into the passage we're going to look at. If I asked you what the very first verse of the Bible is, I imagine that many of you in this room could probably tell me. Even if you're new to church, if you're new to the Bible at all, I might ask you, you might be able to kind of think like, I don't know what the words say, but I I imagine it might probably have something to do with God making the world or creation. That seems kind of like a logical place to start. And you would be right, right? Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Many of us probably are familiar with that verse. But what if I asked you, what's the first verse of the New Testament? Right? The Bible tells a story and it moves through and it culminates in the New Testament. Now, if I asked you, what's the first verse of the New Testament? Something tells me that even if you've been around the church a while, you might struggle a little bit with that one. What is the first verse of the New Testament? Well, it's actually Matthew 1, 1, and it begins this way, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, that's an interesting way to start a story, isn't it? I don't know if you, but if I was going to write a biography of someone, I usually don't start with the first chapter being the genealogy. That's usually not the starter hook that you want when you write a book. But Matthew, when he begins telling the story of Jesus, starts with his lineage and says that he's first and foremost the son of David. Now, why on earth would Jesus it matter that Jesus is the son of David? Well, if you're going to understand that, then you need to look at our passage that we're going to look at today in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So hopefully you've opened there. If not, feel free if you have a device or a Bible near you to open it to it. And we're going to unpack a promise that God makes to David that helps us see why he matters in the story of Jesus. So look with me at 2 Samuel. We're going to jump in right in in verse 1. And it says this, Now when the king, so it's talking about David here, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, to understand how the story opens up, you kind of need to understand the story of and the chapter that precedes 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so, right before this, a significant moment happens in the nation of Israel, and that is the Ark of the Covenant is brought back to the city. Now, that might not seem like that big a deal, but to them, it was a huge deal. Because if you remember last week, we talked about how God had made a covenant with the nation of Israel, that they were going to be his treasured possession. They would be to him a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, his special people that he was going to work through to show the world who he was and how his way was meant to be. And part of the covenant that God made is he gave them certain commandments, certain way to live in order to show the world what God was like. And part of those That law, that thing that God gave, is he commanded them to create an ark. And that ark was meant to be a symbol of God's presence and his covenant with his people. And that ark was meant to be carried wherever the nation would go. And it was to be set up in a tent called the tabernacle, which was meant to be at the center of the nation as a symbol of God's presence among them and the covenant that he had with them. But the problem was the ark had been taken Many years prior to this moment, by rival nations, but Israel, through a series of events, brings the ark back into the city. And so 
2 Samuel chapter 6, there's this high point where we see the symbol of God's presence and God's covenant return to his people. And then verse 1 opens up by essentially saying, as this happens, Israel, specifically through David, begins to enjoy a time of peace. And while they're in this time of peace, David begins to notice that there's a problem. Namely, that his house is a little bit more extravagant than God's house. He kind of says like, well, I don't understand why I'm living in a house of cedar. And cedar would have been a symbol of, it was fine, it was nice, right? This was a lavish house that David enjoyed. While the symbol of God's presence is in a tent. And David begins to think, well, there's a problem. I think I probably need to build God a better house than I have. And so he goes to the prophet Nathan, and Nathan kind of gives his blessing and says, the Lord's with you, go ahead and do what you want to do. But pretty soon after this kind of moment, God enters the picture and suddenly we have a little bit of a twist in our story. Look at verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. And in all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So God now begins to speak through the prophet David to actually bring a correction, or through Nathan, to bring a correction to David. And I think one of the things you need to see immediately in this text is that the prophetic voice is actually very significant here. David is the king. He's the leader of Israel, but he still uses people to bring his word in order to help bring correction when they begin to move outside of God's ways and intention. God always has a way of using people through the authority of his word to bring correction when his people begin to stray off course. In fact, I loved one commentator that I read on this passage says this. He says, For every David, there must also be a Nathan who can come directly into the king's presence and confront his decisions and actions by the authority of the word of God. I think that's a good reminder for all of us, that all of us need those voices who are able to bring the truth of the gospel and the word of God and speak it into our lives in a way to help bring correction. And that's what Nathan does here for David. But what is this correction that God wants to bring? Well, he kind of teases it right at the beginning where he essentially asks, oh, are you going to be the one to build me a house to live in? And the implied answer to David is, no, you're actually not going to be that one. And he begins to walk through a little bit of Israel's history and remind David, listen, I've been living in this tent for quite a while. And if I wanted to change where I had my presence, I would have done so a long time ago. So Why do you think you're suddenly going to be the one to make the determination of where my presence dwells and where I actually am? He kind of corrects. David and Nathan kind of make some assumptions at the beginning of like, well, certainly God must need to be in a house better than mine, so I'll kind of do what I need to do to make that happen. And God kind of steps in to bring a correction. And I think in some ways, he not only brings a good reminder to David, but he also brings a good reminder to all of us. That God doesn't need our work for his glory. What God reminds David is, I don't actually need you to do things for me in order for me to be who I am and do what I do. 
Yeah, great, you have a plan, but did you consult me in that plan? Did you pray and seek what my desire is for where I think my presence should be and how we should go about this? Well, no, they hadn't. They just assumed, yeah, I can go ahead and we can go ahead and build this house. And God reminds him, no, 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 hold up. There's a proper order here. You see, David's kind of like, it's kind of like that moment where you, you buy someone the wrong present. Have you ever, you ever had that circumstance? I told you I'm a terrible gift giver, and several years ago for Christmas, I had this moment where I thought I got my wife, like, the gift that she really wanted, and I was, like, so excited to give it to her, and I had prepped it, and I was like, yes, and I was going to give it to her on Christmas Eve, and it was about the time that she burst out into tears that I realized I had just totally botched the present that I had bought. They were not tears of joy. And so lots of apologies later, I realized that I had made a whole bunch of assumptions about what she wanted, the timing, all of it. And here I was thinking, oh, look what I've done for you. In reality, I'd missed the mark totally. In some sense, that's David. Like David's working like, I, all right, this is what God wants. This is what God needs. Not actually ever asking him just assuming this is what God wants him to do and then begins to go and move forward. And God steps in and says, whoa, 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 whoa. That's the wrong present. That's not how I want this thing to go down. And in so, he reminds David that when we work under assumptions based on our own motives, instead of seeking to really understand the heart and the desire of God, We can find ourselves moving ahead of God in our work and what we do. God doesn't need us to do his work for him. He invites us into it, but when we start to fall into the trap to think that God needs us, we will often outpace God in his desires and his plan and sometimes need the correction that David receives here. Sometimes it's easy for us to assume this is what God wants. Or to assume that because we have certain talents or wealth or certain things within our life that we can just go ahead and do it because God needs me to do this. But oftentimes when we fall into the assumption that God needs us, we move faster than him. And sometimes we need the reminder, God doesn't need you. He doesn't. He loves you, but he doesn't need you. And there's a massive difference in those two things. Because if you start to believe that God needs you, well, of course God wouldn't would want me. I'm legit. He needs what I have if this thing's going to go forward. When you start to believe that lie, You begin to fashion a God in your own image. You begin to take the sovereign, majestic, all-powerful, self-sustaining God and make his reality and glory based on you, not on who he is. And when that's the case, you lessen the God and begin to frame him in your own image There's a movement often that happens in our day that lessens God's sovereignty, God's self-sustaining nature. 
and has begun to fashion God in the image of human beings, defining him by who we are, not by who he is. Holding up our value over his value and worth. I watched a video a while back where I heard a preacher say that the cross is a revealing of your value. Friends, as soon as you begin to believe lies like that, you begin to fashion God in your own image. And the problem is, when life gets hard, when things just plain suck, you don't want a small God in that moment. You want a big God. You need a big God. You need a God who's in control, who has a plan, who has a purpose, who has something beyond just yourself. And thankfully, that's exactly the sort of God the Bible reveals to us. He reminds David here, I don't need you to do my work for me. Paul, later on in the New Testament, would go to the city of Athens, and he would remind them of a similar thing, where he would say on the Areopagus to the Ephesians, he would say, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in a temple made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath in everything. God doesn't need you to serve him. He invites you to do so out of his love. And listen, it's precisely because God doesn't need you that the reality of God's love becomes all that more compelling and our ability to love him becomes that much more dynamic. You might imagine it this way. This is always a great time of year, lots of Christmas illustrations. But imagine with me for a moment that I decided that I was going to give presents to my kids. But the reason I wanted to give presents to my kids is because I needed to get things back from them. Maybe I needed what they would ultimately give to me. Are there many parents that that's the approach with your kids? Do you give gifts to your kids because you're like, I got to get something from my children? No, not at all. My kids love to buy me gifts during Christmas or our family, but I don't need my kids to buy me gifts. And if I did, it would cheapen the nature of the gifts. If the only reason I gave or they gave was because of this need transaction, where's the love? Where's the joy? Where's the flourishing? Where's the stuff that's brought into that moment? But oftentimes in our own minds, this is how we kind of think of God. That like God kind of gives us good gifts. He gives us Jesus because God kind of needs stuff from us. He doesn't. God doesn't need you. He loves you. Even we just talked about vision and the vision that we want to pursue and an invitation into joining with us. But, but let's be clear. God doesn't need your money. God doesn't give you Jesus so he can compel some percentage out of your bank account each month because if he doesn't do that, God forbid his church won't move forward no. He invites you to give because he loves you. 
because he knows his glory is the only thing that can satisfy your life and your heart. And he invites you to give so you'll lessen your stranglehold on material things or lessen the heart that trusts in money more than it trusts in him. He invites you to give, not because he needs it, because he knows it's best for you. He loves you. He gives himself to you. And he reminds David here, I don't need you. Don't fall into that trap. In fact, I have something even greater in mind. And in many ways, what we see in this passage and the thing that I want us to be reminded of today is that when it comes to God, you can't serve God better than he serves you. You can't. You cannot serve him or do more for him than he has already done for you. And he didn't do those things to just somehow compel you to some religious obedience. No, he invites you into relationship. And what we see in this passage is God says, Whoa, David, be careful. Be careful of building a relationship with me that's just based on what you're going to do for me. Instead, be reminded of how I've served you and what I'm going to do for you. And the rest of our passage begins to unfold the way in which God serves not only David, but he serves all of those who would be his people. You see this begin to unpack itself in verse 8. Look at it with me. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The first way that God reminds David that he serves us is he works to bring us rest. Did you catch the flow at the beginning of verse 8? God's like, listen, I'm the one who did all this. I brought you out of the pasture. I rescue my people. I do this. I, I, I. And what he's inviting David to do is to take his eyes off of himself and instead place them on God and to say, look what I've done. It's not about what you've done for me. It's about what I am doing for you in the way that I serve you. God always invites us to look upon himself and to see what he has done on our behalf. That's why we gather every week to remind ourselves of the gospel of what, Jesus, what God has done in and through the saving work of Jesus Christ. He reminds David, I'm sovereign. I'm completely in control of all of this. And I've got a plan. And I've got a plan for you and I've got a plan for all people. And the plan that I have ultimately will move you towards the greatest place of rest and flourishing. You see, in this moment, as God speaks to David, he hearkens back and in many ways brings all the previous covenants to bear in this moment. Remember from the get-go, God had promised, I will do something about 
the serpent. I will do something about evil. I will do something about death. I will do something about sin and the brokenness that I experience in my world. And then he comes to know and he says, listen, I'm not going to accomplish it through destroying the earth. I'm going to accomplish it through my mercy and love. And then he tells Abraham, through you, I'm going to begin to work to create a land and a people through which I will bring blessing to all of the earth. And then he promises Israel and says, ultimately, through you as a nation, you're going to be my representatives. And he brings all that promise, all that storyline into this moment. And he says, now, David, this is what I'm moving towards. To bring you to a place of rest and flourishing. To bring you back to that garden that I created where the world lived in harmony, where there was no injustice, there was no disease, there was no sin. God reminds David that he's going to establish his kingdom. And in his kingdom, that is where we will find ultimate rest and flourishing. This is the promise of Scripture. It's the promise from the beginning all the way till the very end. That God has a plan to bring flourishing to the world. To deal with sin and death and brokenness. And I would argue that there is no religion, no philosophy, no worldview that you will encounter that holds up a greater vision for us and for the entire world than God's vision that he shows us in his kingdom. In the covenants, God promises a new world, a better kingdom that's marked by righteousness and justice, by human flourishing, where nobody is in want, nobody is abused, nobody experiences the suffering of disease, where death is no more. And God says, David, this is what I'm working towards. I'm bringing through you and through my people this plan and this purpose to bring a better world, the world our hearts all desire and long for. And I think sometimes we need to be reminded that that's the end of the story. That's the promise. That's where God is moving all of these things. Because to be honest, a lot of times it sure doesn't feel like the world's moving towards a better world right now, is it? I mean, 2020 has been one killer year, literally. Like, it has been wreaked havoc on relationships, on people, on society, on everything that we have. And there's often times where we can feel the overwhelming nature of it. This week, I saw on one of our acquaintances that we know who had to watch her mom die on Zoom. I mean, how terrible is that? And how often do we encounter that? Or some of you have encountered losing a loved one that thinks, man, this world feels like it's going to pot. I have no idea what's happening. And that's where God steps in and says, no, 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 no. I've got a plan. I'm working towards your rest. I'm working towards a greater purpose. And sometimes we have to hold on to that promise. Right? We have to be like little kids holding on to the voice of our parents in a long car ride. Right, some of you might travel for Christmas. I remember a few years ago, well, a little bit longer now, but we got one year after Christmas, we drove down to Florida to see my brother and sister-in-law were living down there at the time. I think it was the last trip before my wife swore off us ever driving to Florida again. 
But we hopped in the car in the 17, 20, 500, whatever hours it seemed like to drive down there. And pretty soon after we start the drive, right, and if you've ever taken a long trip with kids, you all know the question is coming. It might come five minutes in, it might come an hour in, it might come three hours in, but you know at some point the question's coming, are we there yet? Like, oh my gosh. And you're just praying in your head, you don't hear that question 500 more times before you reach your destination. But why do kids ask that question? Because riding in the car is not that comfortable of an experience, is it? No! You're stuck, you're bored. Listen, I don't know how you parents did long car drives before there were tablets. Kudos to, you get like the, the extra marks. I am blessed in the technology at this point. But it's not fun to ride in the car for 17 hours and there's always the question, are we there yet? Because this kind of stinks. And if you're like me, you give the common answer back to your kids that says, I'm going as fast as I can. And sometimes that's literally. <laughs> right? Just, just hold on. And in many ways, when you say that, you're looking back and say, listen, I, I've got a plan, okay? We're getting there. Don't worry. I've got this under control. We're going to get there. And what allows the kid in that moment to just kind of step back, nestle in, and just kind of wait? Well, it's the promise of the destination, isn't it? It's that the plan is ultimately going to get them to the point that they want to go. It's going to bring them to warmer weather. It's going to bring them to the enjoyment of relationship with their cousins. It's going to bring them to the place that they've been waiting and hoping to get to. And in many ways, all of us, I think, are stuck in that moment where we're like, God, are we there yet? God's like, no, I got a plan. I'm working this thing. Trust me. But don't forget where the destination's heading. I'm working for your rest. I'm working for your flourishing. I'm working to bring about the better world that your heart ultimately longs for. Some of us need reminded that God is promising and promises to you a new world, a new kingdom. That the struggles that we face now are not God's eternal plan. He has something bigger and better in store for us. But how will they come? Well, God ultimately shows us that in the last verses of our passage. Look back with me at verse 11. It says, And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So God promises a greater kingdom. But then he looks at David and he makes a promise that that kingdom is going to ultimately come through his lineage, through a king that he will bring from his line. I love how God reverses the nature in this, right? David wants to build God a house, and God says, no, 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 you're not going to build me a house. That's not the plan here. I'm actually going to build you a house. 
And in Hebrew, the word house can both mean a building and it can mean your offspring or your lineage. And God says, I've got a better plan. This kingdom that I've been promising, it's actually going to come through an eternal king that will come from your line. And he is going to establish that kingdom, an eternal kingdom. And this king, he's going to be to me like a son, and I'm going to be like his father. That's the sort of relationship that I'll have with this king. And he will be not only a son, he'll be an obedient son. Listen, some of your descendants, they're not going to obey, but there is going to be one who will obey. There is going to be one who will carry that deep relationship with me, and through him I will establish your house and your kingdom forever and ever. And so all of God's promises, all of God's covenants, all that God has been telling and speaking to his people now come to find their focal point on one person, a king, a king that is to come from the line of David. And we're invited to begin looking for that king. But the problem is that each of David's offspring, if you continue on in the story, and if you're bored this afternoon and want to read through 2 Samuel, you can see it, is that one after another, David's sons fail to live up and be the obedient son. They fail to be the king that God promised. From Solomon on down, one after another, failure, 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 until finally God actually has to send his people into exile because their rebellion has gotten so bad. But in that place, as God sends his people to exile, he reminds them, I'm not giving up on this promise. I'm not going to give up and turn my back like I did on Saul when he disobeyed me. No, I've got something better planned. And the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9 would speak to the nation of Israel and remind them of God's promise and who he wants to bring. And one of those great passages that often marks this time of year and was made famous by Handel in his Messiah, we see again the promise of this coming king when Isaiah would write in Isaiah 9 verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, right? You want to like start singing right here. Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God promised that he would send that king. And so when you then open up the book of Matthew and you see that opening line, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, it becomes clear what Matthew is proclaiming. That this promised one, this king that God's going to bring, he's actually here. And that promised king is himself, Jesus the Christ. He's going to bring this kingdom and establish God's throne. He is going do what God had promised in establishing his eternal kingdom forever. Jesus is the king and he brings the kingdom we're all looking for.
See, we, we pine, we, we long for the vision that the Bible presents to us of the world to come. Who doesn't want a world where there's no injustice, where there's no unrighteousness, where there's no sin, where there's no one who's left behind or left out, where there's flourishing and prosperity for all? Who doesn't want a world where peace reigns and not war? Who doesn't want a world with no disease and no death? Who doesn't long for that? We don't use words like kingdom in our language. We use words like utopia, and we all desire, can't we just get to that point? You see, we all want the kingdom, but the promise to David and the promise we need reminded of today is that we don't get the kingdom without the king. See, we live in a world that wants the kingdom, but has turned their back on Jesus. And so we've begun looking for a king anywhere that will bring the vision that our hearts long for. I mean, we just went through the worst political season that I've experienced in my lifetime. Why? Because the hope of the world is pinning itself that if we just get the right person in office, maybe our little country, our little sphere of the world will be okay. If we just get the right king, put our trust and our wealth, our security, all these little things hoping maybe if I just get this right, or, or we turn and we look at ourselves. I mean, if I can just get myself right, then I'll be okay. You see, we want the vision of the kingdom, but what the scripture reminds us of is you can't have the kingdom without the king because he's the one that brings the kingdom. And he doesn't bring it in the way we think he brings it, does he? Jesus doesn't ride onto the scene with political power and massive wealth and social status. No, he shows up in the scene, born of a woman in a backwoods cave, in a feeding trough, in a town nobody cares about. Because the kingdom often comes in unexpected ways. And it shows up in unexpected places. But the reality of that king is that he would be the king that ultimately would be the obedient son. He would be faithful where everyone else would fail. And that he, in his love for you, would go and he would die the death. And in another unexpected turn of events, through his death and sacrifice, would defeat the enemy, Satan. Would ultimately conquer sin and offer us freedom from our own sin, a covering for our rebellion. And then he would rise again three days later to announce the kingdom is here and it is available to all. The king has arrived. And he's brought his kingdom. And it's here and now. And you, friend, that kingdom that long you're longing for, you can experience that kingdom today. That justice that you long for, you can begin to experience that today. That love, that righteousness, the things that your heart beats for are offered to you in Jesus Christ. But once again, this kingdom comes in an unexpected way. Because you can't serve God more than he serves you. God doesn't invite you into his kingdom through your effort, through your work, through better obedience, through more trying, through more of what you need to do. No, he simply says, all you have to do is receive. All you have to do is just trust me. Trust me as your savior. 
that my death can cover your sins. Trust in my resurrection, that I am the true Lord of the earth and bow your knee to me and begin to experience my kingdom. So God invites all of us this morning to embrace the promise of David, to embrace the King Jesus, to put our hope and our faith in him and him alone. And I pray you would do that this morning. In fact, let me just pray for you right now. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you for your promises. Thank you that in a world that's marked by sin, death, brokenness, that you didn't leave us in that place, but long ago you promised to do something about it. We thank you that in Jesus you have brought your kingdom, that he is the true king, the true Lord, that all authority in heaven and on earth belong to him, and we give him today the highest praise. He is our great king. God, I pray for those right now this morning that are maybe watching online or sitting in this room whose hearts burn, longing for the vision that you lay of the world that you are moving us towards. God, I pray you would help them to see your love for them. Maybe you don't need them, but you sure do love them and you invite them into a loving covenant relationship with you and Jesus and they can begin to experience the reality of your kingdom if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, God invites you to trust him and to experience the incredible king and kingdom he has for you. And God, for those of us that are here this morning that that do know you, that have put our trust in the king, I pray you would help us to continue to grow deeper in that trust. How easy it is to put our hope in fickle things, to put our hope in other human beings and political power and all sorts of things in this world that we want to cling to in this season. Would you remind us deep in our hearts that there's only one king that we can trust in today and would you help us to put our focus and our attention on him? Help us to be devoted in our worship to him because we know he's our greatest joy. Even now, God, would you take this moment as we just celebrate and sing together this, this classic Christmas carol, would you refresh it as just a dedication of our trust in you, our King Jesus, that we proclaim it together. You are the true King, the saving King of all. Would you let our hearts find our rest in you? Move now, I pray, in your holy and precious name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family head over to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.